Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Paul Reiser. Paul is the definition of the multi-hyphenate performer, an actor, television writer, author, musician, and of course, a stand-up comedian. In fact, Paul is leaving his cozy California confines and traveling across the continent to appear live on March 18th at our very own The Rose Brampton with a stand-up performance starting at 8 p.m. Tickets are available now at therosebrampton.ca. Welcome, Paul, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Welcome back to Canada, and more specifically, Brampton and the wider GTA or greater Toronto area. I am uh, honored to be a part of everything you just said. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, I want to jump right into your connections to Toronto and our wider country of Canada. Any memories of either touring or filming, just visiting? Do you have any family connections in the Great White North? Not that I'm aware of. I know. The last time I was in Toronto was two summers ago. I was there for a few days filming uh, a couple episodes of The Boys, mm-hmm. which was fun. And that was uh, right in the summer, and it was beautiful. And uh, and it makes one forget about the fact that you have a lot of snow and freezing cold. We do, yeah. but we have committed to getting it all cleared away before you yeah, I show up. That. <laughs> you know, it's a lovely city. It always, it always felt to me like New York, but just a little bit more civilized. Uh, and less less intense. <laughs> well, Having grown up in New York, so any city that feels like New York feels feels like home to me. I, I I've enjoyed my time. I've and I've been there periodically for a quick little. I performed a couple of uh, it's some corporate events and charity events in in Toronto, but haven't been there for a while. And I'm looking forward to yeah to do a stand up. I haven't done. I think the first time I did well, was mm-hmm. Montreal at the uh, the laugh. Uh, yeah, just for laughs. Just for laughs festival. And that was like <laughs> 1986. So that's a while ago. Every 40 years, I like to come to <laughs> Well, that's a good time period. Paul, you are now returning to not only your roots in stand-up comedy, but to the craft that you have said you enjoy the most. Being on stage solo with direct audience contact, you've done it all. Why is stand-up comedy still your favorite artistic medium? You know, something I wouldn't have thought about when I first did it. When I started, and I, you know, first time I ever went on stage to do, try stand-up, I was 18, I was in college. And yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, obviously. Uh, and if I knew how bad I was, I probably would never bond up. But that was my goal, you know. And I didn't have any dreams of stand up, of, of film and, and TV. But one of the things that's only I've come to appreciate now is the immediacy that you talk about. You know, when you do a show, uh, a, a TV show or a movie, there, it's often great, and you know I've been really fortunate to be in you know Stranger Things, which is the biggest global hit you could imagine, and and in some great films. But there was the the fruit of that is often in the when they come out, you know, and they're mm-hmm. being enjoyed. They're not necessarily fun in the moment making them, and this is the piece that I didn't wouldn't have appreciated if I hadn't had this experience. You don't have to go through 12 middlemen to get it set up. You know, you want to do a TV show where you got to write it, you got to sell it, you got to raise the money if it's a film, you got to, you know, you got to have to have meet with executives and, and it takes a million. It's, there are long, slow births that often don't lead anywhere. And stand up is just so uncomplicated in that way. It's just, you think of something funny, you say it. And as you said, the audience is right there. So there's nothing, there's no wait time. They'll tell you right there if it's funny. Yeah. wonder. And you've also noted, Paul, that this is one of the few things that you can do in your 60s that is close to how you did it back when you were 19 years old. Yeah, for sure. That was startling to me. When I I had taken a long time off and I hadn't performed, 
And when I went back into the clubs, I was realizing it was as fun, it was as challenging, as exciting, as unpredictable. And I thought, oh, I had the same sort of excitement and, and uh, adrenaline rush that I felt when I went up as a, you know, as a younger guy. And uh, yeah, there aren't a lot of things that, that replicate. It, it, was, it was startlingly identical. You know, it was, it was all, in that way, it was almost no difference. Uh, the difference was, I mean, years later, I, hopefully I know what I'm doing a little better than I did at 18. <laughs> yeah. It was an interesting thing. When I went up the first time going up a couple of years ago, and I would swing by the local comedy club here down in Hermosa Beach, California. There's a great club called the Comedy Magical. And I would go and show up on a Tuesday night, and they would be nice enough to put me up. And the audience, you know, now, while they know you, they would go, and having not, for, there was a long stretch where I hadn't been on TV or anything. So it's like, oh, I and it's exciting. And they're clapping and they're that's good for about twelve seconds. And then they're looking at you like, and what is it you'd like to tell us? I went, Oh yeah, that's the part I don't have figured out. I just I thought I'd come. And uh so all my goodwill and recognition is nice, but it doesn't carry through. You still have to have some chops and something to say. You still gotta bring it. You still gotta bring it. Now, Paul, I'm sure you can appreciate that if you tell 10 people that you are going to be having a conversation with Paul Reiser, you will literally get 10 different suggestions for the must-ask questions. <laughs> I, of course, I, of course, want to talk to you about Mad About You. My wife wants me to ask you about the movie Diner. My dear mother has literally read all your books on families and parenting, and she has Jewish mother commentary she wanted me to share. I have various friends who want to talk about Aliens, The Boys, Reboot, Beverly Hills Cop. Now, of course, I like, you, I like that everyone had questions, but your mother had comments. <laughs> got it. She had comments. Oh, and, and criticisms, I'm sure. <laughs> well, perhaps a few. Now, Paul, you get approached by fans all the time. I want to know how good is your radar towards anticipating what particular project an approaching fan recognizes you for? Is it from 20 feet away, 15 feet? When do you know what they're going to be asking you about? Well, you know, it, it, it's... Sometimes it's simple. If if a, if a ten year old recognizes me, I know it's Stranger Things. Very few ten year olds have watched Mad About You uh, uh, at this point. So, uh, you know, for the longest while, Mad About You certainly opened things up. But I'm always surprised. You know, I, I don't always see it coming. For years, and still, people will come over and do a line from Beverly Hills Cop, the first one, which was forty years ago, and people will just say, "Hey, this is not my locker." I went. Are you kidding? That was 40 years ago. But what I didn't understand is that for a long time, people would do twists on the line. I'd be at an airport, somebody would go, hey, this is not my suitcase. I went, no, it's my suitcase. <laughs> no, it's not. I go, oh, you're doing a bit. Okay. You know, I, I, it took me a while to understand that. It's it's always surprising and and, and uh, refreshing. About a few years ago, it was the first time I went to a uh, an alias, like a sci-fi, a Comic-Con sci-fi convention. And... I, I literally didn't know that there is this subculture of people on that film specifically, people who watch that film every day, every week for 35 years, who have props, who have questions and like, I don't know anything that you're talking about. I, <laughs> in it. Uh, I know, you know, so I didn't know that that subculture existed. And I'll tell you something else. It was fun. And I didn't know this till I went out and did comedy and I would, you know, do meet and greets and I'd talk to people after the show. And people, and this is in the last you know, five, six years, where people would come over and they'd have a man about you story they felt they wanted to share. Like, oh boy, that joke, my wife and I do that joke all the time. Boy, and that thing, that really hit a nerve, and we had a big fight about that. 
or we got married to your theme song. And it was all it was new to me because when we the show was on in the nineties, A, we didn't have social media, so there wasn't a lot of interaction. And plus I was busy. So I didn't have these conversations. So it was it's been really uh heartwarming to and enlightening to find out that something that we did thirty years ago almost, yeah, thirty years ago, had the impact and still continues to resonate with people. That's a really nice thing to know. It's amazing and it must feel great for you. I know to offset my my mother's uh, anticipated criticisms, I, I want to share and personally thank you for something. And that's in over 100 interviews I've done for this Toronto Legends podcast. My 16-year-old daughter has had less than zero interest in any of the interviewees. And frankly, <laughs> this includes you, Mr. Paul Reiser. I should hope when so. I ca- <laughs> But when I casually mentioned that you had played Dr. Sam Owens on Stranger Things, things changed immediately. This interview is now the big story in the hallways of Richmond Green High School, and thus I am proactively thanking you for elevating my social status in both my own home and my community from a nobody to at least a somebody. Well, it's somebody, and and, by, and just so you know, it's short-lived. So my younger son got me into Stranger Things, like just in time, just before they called to offer me a role, he had told me about it. And so he was, it was very cool. He was very excited that I was going to be on it. And then, so the second season when I was on it, I was talking to him and I said, you know, it's funny. I would have watched season one because everybody was talking about it. I said, but season two, to be honest, I, you know, it, it's not my kind of show. I don't know that I would have watched it. And he said, with no trace of irony, you know, dad, I would have enjoyed season two a lot more if you were not in it. And I, he said, asshole, I, I use his Hebrew name. And an asshole, <laughs> I can That's when you say that. <laughs> but I remember he was with Springsteen, and he said his kids know maybe two of his songs. I have to work really hard to not know more Bruce Springsteen songs than two. But that's yes. the thing. Nobody, no matter how big a person is, their kids are just, they will bring you right down to earth. They will ground they you. They don't care. <laughs> But Paul, apparently the Dr. Sam Owens role was originally written as Dr. Riser specifically for you by the Duffer brothers. Is this accurate? Yeah. That's what they told me, unless they're just lying to him. But <laughs> yeah, no, we, they had, you know, and I know when I write things, you have a certain actor in mind. Even if you're not thinking of casting them, you just think it just helps you visualize it. So for whatever reason, they had me in mind. And then they figured, well, we, we could either cross it out or see if Riser. <laughs> And I literally, I, I had heard about the show on a Friday, or it came out on Friday, and I met them on a Monday, the following Monday, and uh, they told me about this. And they were very sketchy at the time. I said, well, am I a good guy or a bad guy? They go, well, we don't know. I said, well, wait, you don't know, or you don't want to tell me? They go, no, we don't know. And I still don't know. Um, I don't even know if I'm dead or alive. At the end of season four, I'm left sort of shackled to a radiator and beaten up. And I went, I could come back. If somebody opened the door and let me eat, uh, or they could have left me there to die. I don't know. Still don't know, as we speak. Well, what a great decision towards kind of exposing you to a whole new audience. Being in your 60s, I, I guess it was your son who gets the credit. Who was the cultural uh, canary in the coal mine? Yeah, that's what made you realize. My younger son, when he got me into the boys, well, he didn't get me into the boys. I got uh, offered to join the boys, and I had not, I didn't even... I didn't know the show, and I hadn't even heard of it, to be honest, at the time. And I asked him, I said, hey, you know what, the show, they, they want me to be on The Boys. He said, oh, it's great, 
comma, and you'll hate it. <laughs> I said, well, that's just the worst selling point I've ever heard. But I watched it. I said, oh, yeah, I get, I get it. It is so over the top, but it is artfully over the top and deliberately over the top to the point of being funny and, and self-aware. So it was, uh, it was great fun. I had a great time doing that. It was really fun. Now, of course, let's go back to your first love stand-up. You started out, Paul, during summers, during college, when you weren't doing open mic nights yourself, you would go see live in the clubs of New York City. Who would you see? I mean, some incredible names. You've done your homework, man. You've read everything I've ever done. Uh, well, well, there were two pieces. Of that. When I was in high school, before I ever did stand-up, and I was 14, 15, my buddy and I, we would go down into the, uh, the village, and we would see... George Carlin. So I'm thinking George Carlin was huge by 72. He was playing, you know, big theater. So we saw him. So this must have been 71 or 70. That's how long ago. Uh, Robert Klein, David Steinberg. And then a few years later, when I was 18, 19, I would go to the clubs, uh, you know, on audition night. And the big thrill was you could hang out. They would tell you, all right, you, you pass that level of low bar. You can hang out. You're not going to get on stage, but you can hang out. So, you know, this is 73, 74, and you're watching these, the, the new young guys, so it was Richard Lewis, it was Elaine Boostler, it was Richard Belzer, Richard, rest in peace, Richard, and uh, David Say, Andy Kaufman, which, and then most people would drop in. You know, so David Brenner, who was huge, would drop in and do a set. Rodney Dangerfield would come on. <laughs> he would come in and work out, only if he was doing a Tonight Show. And he would just come out and do seven minutes killer, boom, 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 and then he would say, "Yeah, hey, I want to, I just want to try this out before I do it on the Tonight Show." He goes, "I'm not going to do it on Tonight Show. Try it out before I come here. That would be stupid. <laughs> I'm not going to do it the other way around." And who else would come in? You know, Robin Williams would pop in, and Billy Crystal would come back sometimes. You know, you would you would see, it, but it was really the breeding ground, and sometimes. I find that I, I tell people this all the time. Sometimes you can be inspired by greatness, but you can also be inspired by mediocrity. I remember in college, you know, I would do it a few times in the summer. And then my senior year of college, in the spring, I was watching The Tonight Show, and a, a comic who uh, was on, who I had only seen, I'd seen like a few months earlier in the summer. He was just sort of beginning. I went, wow, he he progressed that far in nine months that he's on The Tonight Show. And he, you know, he did fine. But I remember thinking, well, he wasn't that great last summer. So I remember thinking, well, hell, I could do that. I mean, like, but it also underscored to me that what it takes is stage time and and practice and uh, elbow grease. It's like, well, you know, I'm not going to get too far doing it twice a year. No, you got to do yeah. it as many times as you can. And in the few years when I was in the beginning, when I was living in the city, you would try to do all the clubs, and you'd often do three shows, you know, three different shows, four shows. Sometimes, I remember I once did seven shows, and my head exploded. I, I <laughs> Too much. Said anymore, but that was, and it takes years. It takes years, and you tell people, you know, young comics like, you know, five to ten years to know what you're talking about. That's yeah, like, yeah. I mean, you might get discovered sooner, but there is a great uh, jeopardy, I think, in people getting discovered before they. I don't know if the, if the rules of show business that we grew up on even apply anymore because you can be huge just from YouTube or whatever uh, or by, you know, doing thing in the streets. But my experience was that, you know, it was a good thing 
you know, you wish, you think you're so great. You know, you've done it six times. Well, somebody's going to see me and make me a star. Thank God that because didn't have the chops. Yeah. And, um, I remember Stephen Wright, who was very much, his career was very different than trajectory than anybody else. But he went on The Tonight Show and just killed. And Johnny had him back like a few days later, which never happens. And luckily, uh, fortunately, he had the skills and the material. He had enough material that you could do two seven-minute sets. But a lot of people would say, oh, I, I got to go away for eight months. <laughs> yeah. Then it's that I can, you know, respectably show on TV. Well, Paul, you became a fixture on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Do you remember your very first appearance? Yeah, yeah, very clearly. It was, you know, it, it was uh, April of 82, and it was the week that Diner had just come out, and that was sort of a selling point, because I don't know if it was just on my merits as a stand-up alone. I don't know that I would have gotten tapped. Uh, there's always a gatekeeper that goes, nah, I don't know if Johnny's been, you know, I, I like him, but I don't know if Johnny would like him. And uh, he was often wrong because people said he didn't like Johnny Love. But um, I went on and I remember b being so prepared and working on it so long that I had this odd sense of calm that when I've seen it, it's on YouTube somewhere, that you know, I go, oh my God, I'm talking so slowly because I was, remember, I was told, hey, you're going to be excited. So remember, slow down. And I slowed down. So if I was going any slower, I'd be going backwards. It was that slow. <laughs> yeah. But I remember it not being a shock. I remember it being one of those things where you've envisioned this moment so long, you've projected it. But when you get there, it actually feels like a jacket that was fit. You go, yeah, this feels right. This is what exactly what I pictured. You were prepared. I was prepared. And then I didn't do it for a long time. You know, I don't know that I did that well, that they had me back. And I didn't come back for a few years. Uh, and then in 86, and again, I think it was because Aliens came out. And I came on with that. And then something clicked and Johnny took a shine to me. And then I was on from like 86 to, to the end, when he was on 92, I was on a lot. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got TVO's Steve Pakin, our Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, Olympic gold medalist Donovan Bailey, Mark McCoy and Bruni Surin, the king of Bay Street, Wes Hall, and Glass Tigers' Alan Frew. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about that 1982 film, Diner, at 23 years old. This and is your wife's question, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, listen, I know you should read his advice. It's usually, usually guys who love that film, so I, <laughs> I always love when a woman loves that film. Absolutely, and as you would counsel me, start with your wife's question, make sure it gets in there. <laughs> um, you were 23 years old, you had no real career plan, you literally stumbled into an audition for Barry Levinson's film. 40 years later, Paul, it's it's amazing how many careers got launched from that movie. Kevin Bacon, yeah. Ellen Bark, and Steve. Yeah, Cooper, I, it Steve was so York, Daniel Stern. Yeah, it was um, it was a total accident. I was literally just uh, hanging out with a buddy who was on his way to audition, and uh, so I was waiting in the in the lobby, and then the casting director asked me to come in afterwards. And I tried very hard to back, bow out of it. I said, "I'm not here for this. I'm just waiting for my buddy." But she pressed upon me to come back, and I came back the next day, and I met Barry Levinson, and a few weeks later, weeks later, two weeks later, I was in Baltimore making a movie. And uh, we recently had an event out here. Last year, it was the 40th anniversary of the film, so somebody, they had a special screening and a Q&A, and, and uh, uh, 
uh, Barry Levinson was out of town filming, but it was Kevin Bacon and Steve Guttenberg and uh, Timmy Daly and me. And it was, we, we, you know, we went out to dinner before and we were reminiscing and it just felt like old guys, like guys do, like you don't need any prep. You know, we hadn't spoken for a while, but you just hit the ground running and we were remembering, you know, just the silly stuff that we did it, we in our knucklehead eight weeks in Baltimore. And then we, and it was Kevin Bacon said, kind of quietly goes, have you noticed when you go on a set now, we are the oldest people there? I went, yes. <laughs> when the hell did that happen? <laughs> uh, I was like, you're older than the grips. You're older than the prop guy. Like, that's not right. Well, my cultural touchstone, Paul, for you, of course, is mad about you. Now, this was created by you, about you. I believe you had, you had just gotten married in real life. Yeah, yeah. I, I got married in 88, and then, um, and the show was in 92, but we were de developing it since 90. But my stand-up had become, wasn't entirely, but the best stuff in my stand-up, the stuff that was succeeding and the best stuff that felt truest was the, the relationship stuff. And I was talking about living together and gee, how things change. And, you know, I used to get dressed all by myself, but now I got to check, does this shirt go? Can I wear this? And, you know, or I get to the door and my wife will go, you're not going to wear that. I go, I apparently I'm not. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, well, how did I get out of the house before for the first yeah. time? So after I had another TV experience, the, the, the takeaway for me was I had a much more clear sense of what I'd never wanted to do again and what kind of show I would want to do. And primarily that was, boy, I'd want to do a show that was small and that my friends would watch. You know, uh, it's nice to do a show that, oh, my kids love your show. It's like, yeah, but I want to do a show where my peers, adults watch. So I was approached in 90 by a studio to develop my a show for myself. And I said, well, I don't know that I want to do another half hour, but if I did, it would be really small. It would be like a couple and just, you know, the intimate intricacies and intimacies of a marriage. And they said, go right back. And that became mad about you. And the funny thing about it is when I would go pitch it to all the networks, every network, you know, usually people would jump in on a premise like, well, what if it wasn't a Martian or what if it was a... But in this case, when I was talking about, you know, the examples and the little moments that happened in America, they would all chime in like we were friends and go, ah, listen to this. So my mother-in-law is staying with us. Did everybody have a thing? I said, I think we're onto something here because everybody is relating to this. And yeah. that was always the, the litmus test for us is that people would always say, oh, man, you sound exactly like what happens in my house. That's the fight I had with my wife. That's the issue with my husband. And that was always music to our ears because, like, okay, we're doing something right. And of course, so much of the success came from your chemistry with Helen Hunt. What was your litmus test? She played. She played the girl. Right? <laughs> yeah, I believe. Yeah, 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 of course. Yes, I, you know, I placed the main. <laughs> yeah, okay. You knew her from somewhere. Yeah. How did you cast her, and and how did you know that you would have that great chemistry? Well, the fun thing again, I owe my wife not only my material but the casting choice. My wife was we very good friends with a, uh, a woman who was friends with Ellen. In fact, I think they were the housemates. They shared a house. And they were having uh, a dinner party. This was December 91. So I was writing the pilot. And I hadn't, I don't know if I had finished it. Maybe I, I don't remember. But uh, we went to this dinner party. And I, in my head, again, I had an image of an actress or two uh, in my head that I was writing to it. Not that I would get them, but that's who I was thinking of. None of them looked like Helen Hunt. And we went to this dinner party, and it was, you know, eight, ten people. 
and I had never met Helen. And she was just charming and funny and lovely and and real and you know blazingly smart and just the right amount of neurotic and like offbeat and offbeat in every way. And I just was intrigued. I thought she was just so uh, great. And I, as literally walking out of the house, I turned to my wife. I said, "What do you think about her as you?" She go, "Oh, she." So I remember I said to her, and she was, Helen was just starting to get some traction in film and she'd done Mr. Saturday Night with Billy Crystal and she'd done Water Dance and she was really, you know, on her way and was pretty clear she never wanted, she wasn't, didn't want to do TV. So, but I asked her very gingerly and diplomatically, can I send you this script? And she, you know, as a very diplomatic, oh, sure, I'd be happy to read it. And uh, just so you know, I'm not looking to do TV. And in her head, she was picturing, you know, Welcome Back, Cotter, that she'd be the, the wife who says, oh, honey, you knucklehead, and you know, laugh at my joke. And she read the script and went, oh, it's actually a two-hander, and they're both funny, and they're both neurotic, and they're both uh, you know, wanting this man. They're not pissing on the marriage. They both want this relationship to work yeah. to such an extent that actually they're both tripping over themselves. And she went, oh, I kind of like this. Now what do I do? And I remember I said, well, come on, let's why don't you just come over to my house and let's, let's read it and see how it feels. And that was talk about how did I know she was right. It's like not only was she funny and it felt right, but she's such a great actress and such a, a real actress that she can't just sit and read. She's got to do. And so we're in my kitchen in real life and in a script, we're in the kitchen. So to make it active, she got up and she started cleaning my dishes in the sink and she's putting dishes away. What the fuck? What? What are you doing? <laughs> You don't have to do that. We we'll look at good. No, it's in the script that said, "Oh, you were acting. Oh my god, that was so good. I was distracted, and so it, it was like, you know, no more calls, please. Like this is great. And again, you know, you love who you love. I, I, I she was not at all like I pictured. I was picturing my wife. And I was picturing. You know, Ellen looks nothing like my wife. I went, yeah, but she's right, and she's she's the one. You know, we laugh about it, but we we Helen and I we. Have, we did click so immediately. And there were differences in our tastes and sensibilities. And sometimes I'd want to lean a little this way or she'd want to lean a little that way. But invariably, we would come in with notes, like we'd get the script and we'd both give our notes and we'd like, yeah, identical notes. So you say it, I'll say it. We both. And then we three years ago, we got to do the little revisit, which was great fun. And because we had seven years of experience behind us and 20 years of friendship, so it was even more so. Plus, we had each raised kids and we had, you know, had life taken a bite out of us. So uh, we just put that all in the script. And that was the fun of, frankly, of getting back uh, for the, not for us, but for the characters. We thought, last time you saw these people, they just had a brand new baby and life was all laid out ahead of them. Well, what is 20 years duty? Well, you're not newlyweds. Your dreams probably didn't pan out exactly as planned. You had some bumps you didn't expect. Your kid was more than a handful than you expected. I thought that's great fun to write, and um, it felt, you know, even better. We were even closer, and and uh, I think those shows were as good or better than anything we did before. Well, it's so clear, Paul. You had uh, earlier been kind of on the record that you would not do a reboot, and now that you have done it, clearly you enjoyed it. I still say I'm not going to. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't want to do it. Well, we both were so clear. We used to laugh about it because. For one reason, we loved the show and we were so proud of what we did and we ended it exactly as we wanted to end it. We even gave a glimpse into the future. We said, here's what the next 20 years will look like. So that we'll never have to. We couldn't even be tempted if we wanted to. We go, sorry, we already shot our load. 
with the idea, the appeal was was getting to play together again. And, you know, because everybody was asking, they would do so many reboots. And I, I think when something is done, it should be done. But so many shows were having success with reboots that studios were inviting us and like, would you guys want to come back? And so we had to think about it. And in my head, part of the reason, as I say, part of the reason I didn't want to do it is that we ended it well and it was done. The other piece was, in my mind, whenever you see a reunion or, or a, a re, you know, reboot, it's really mainly so the audience can go, oh, he put on yeah. <laughs> She doesn't look well. I think she had some work done. You know, and it's like you're a circus. And it's like, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to give anybody that satisfaction. So I go, yeah, no, you want to watch, look at how I looked in 92. Let's, let's freeze it there. Yeah. So, but I, I have to say, I'm really glad we did it. And we, we knew, we said, let's just do it once. And they, you know, when you're contract, what about second season? Go, no, there's no second season. We're doing it one time. Uh, you know, and if it's such a great hit and everybody loves it, we'll do more. But I don't, I, I, you know, there's more to life than doing what you've already done. But uh, I was very glad we did it. And we had, what was really interesting too, is how the cast, we had all been friends and we had kept in touch and we were, you know, deep friends. But we hadn't assembled as a group. We hadn't all been together. And when we did three years ago, instantly, it's like getting the other dog. We were back and we get into the apartment and you know that physical space. It's like, were we gone 20 years or a week? Because it feels like we know exactly what to do. That must be such a great feeling. It was great. Something that's uh, so fascinating about you, Paul, is uh, you were a music major at the State University of New York, otherwise known as SUNY Binghamton, and you wrote the theme song for Mad About You. It's now played at weddings. Yeah. How, how gratifying is that for you? Well, that's really gratifying. I can honestly say that a degree in music was not necessary to write the theme song to play. <laughs> oh, right. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a simple, bluesy progression. Like I had pretty much in 10th grade, I had it down. But uh, no, that was great fun. That was one of the highlights of the whole thing for me. And again, an accident. Two weeks before we aired, the pilot pilot aired in 92, Helen Hunt and I were going to New York for some uh, publicity. And in the airport lounge, we is Don Was, uh, a legendary producer and, compo- and great musician. And he's produced, you know, Bonnie Raitt's Grammy-winning records, everybody, Willie Nelson, Paul McCartney, Elton John, he's done everybody. And Helen and he had a mutual friend, so they started talking and we started talking. And he said, Oh, what's your theme song? I said, Well, you know, we have something that somebody wrote. I don't love it. He goes, Well, how about you and I write one? I said, Well, there's in two weeks. He goes, Well, we can do that. I said, Well, it'll have to kind of be tonight. He goes, well, let's do it tonight. Went, there's no shaking you, isn't it? So I remember it was just such a thrill. It was all new to me. I had never been in any of this part of the world. And we got to New York, and that night, 11.30, I go over to the west side, the, the record plant, I think it was, and he's finishing up a recording session with Felix Cavallari. I'm like, what world did I just step into that I'm listening to the rascals, Felix Cavallari, and we're sitting with Don Was. And then Don goes, well, what do you got? I said, well, and I had, I had been listening to some songs, and I said, I had, I had that opening beat, and then I said, I had an idea of some chords and a melody. He goes, listen, and he really just taught me, I'm like, well, just hit record. And you don't, it doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be great. It doesn't even have to be good yet. It's in, in the work. So I, in that fortuitous meeting, I learned so much from him about the process. Like, just keep going. And, and he said, and I remember, there is, a, there is a cassette that we recorded that night, two tracks. First track, I'm playing bass in the left hand and he's strumming guitar. And another 
one where he's playing drums on the back of his guitar, banging out the rhythm. And I was scat singing with no words. I was going, see the do the dad is scat well. He goes, okay, well, who do you think should sing? I go, well, you know, it'd be great. Like, Lyle Lovett. He goes, let me send this to Lyle Lovett. I go, you can't send Lyle Lovett that shit that I just, me singing bullshit words. No, I don't think. And he did. And Lyle famously passed on it. And then he and I, and then he ended up being on Mad About You. And oh, wow. Friends. And we, so he and I have been friends for a while. And when we did the revisit three years ago, the, the Mad About You reboot, I called him and I said, do you want to do it now? He goes, yes, please. I was uh, crazy to have passed on that. So he did it. And it was a duet between him and um, Akisha. And she was, she's a pillar singer, a Broadway star. So, the, you know, the two voices together were really great fun. You had some really amazing guest stars on Mad About You. And, and I guess I want to ask you, how surreal was it for you yeah. to be acting alongside Carol O'Connor, Carol Burnett, Mel Brooks, and even the noted comedian Yoko Ono? Yes, noted uh, for comedy chops. Um, it was thrilling. And it was never it was never not thrilling. And again, you, life works out in funny ways. We just, we had this really wacky script in the first season that yeah, an eccentric millionaire we said you know like jerry lewis would be great and everybody goes well you're not going to get jerry lewis or so what else well somebody said well try it and we i don't know how we contacted his agent and he went yes and then you come to find out jerry lewis shared he said nobody's ever asked me well are you kidding he's and it's like you know the beautiful girl that everybody's too scared to ask to dance it's like nobody wanted to ask jerry what we did and he did the show and it was it wasn't our best episode but it was it was it was a thrill, and, and he was ridiculously funny. And then, you know, we had this character from my uncle. We said Mel Brooks. And Mel Brooks happened to ha have an office on the same soundstage on the studio lot where we filmed. So Helen and I walked over and humbly got on our knee and kissed his ring. And the crazy part was Mel didn't think that was out of order. He, was, <laughs> he likes it. Kissing the ring is... We never took it for granted that Helen and I would pinch ourselves because we, we all grew up. One of the things that I loved about Helen is that she knew those comedy records by heart. She grew up on Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner records. She, David Steinberg, big Canadian comedian. Absolutely. Uh, icon who directed dozens of our episodes. He was flattered that Helen knew his albums by heart. And I knew mm -hmm. him. Like, somehow you don't expect that Helen Hunt's going to know that album. We were constantly pinching ourselves. And I remember there's one show, an episode particularly, we were with Carol Burnett and Carol O'Connor, and we're just going, look at us. Yeah. Us two idiots. And of course, when we had Yoko, and that we, we, Yoko, that was just absurd. And that particular episode was basically written. Larry Charles, who was a great writer and director, did Borat, wrote on Seinfeld. He was our executive producer, writer for the fourth and fifth season. So when we had Yoko... And we did. We had Yoko, and she said yes. And then we didn't have a script. And I was kind of, and I just had my son was born, and I was distracted, and I was really anxious. I said, "We don't have a script." And anyway, Yoko's coming, and we had, and my anxiety—I was so spinning into circles. And Larry was smart enough. He goes, "That's the show." So Paul Buckman should be that crazy that Yoko called, and we don't have anything. And true to form, we had so we had a great script, and we had we finished the show, and then it came time to do the uh, little tags that we would do that we showed under the credits. You know, there were little 30-second, 40-second things that would sometimes break the fourth wall. We could look into the camera. They weren't part of the show. And the clock is running. We have an audience. We have the crew. 
We didn't have an idea. And we're going, what should we do? And we're going, what if it, and Yoko kind of, you know, timidly raises her hand. She goes, can I make a suggestion? Said, yes, please. And she said, well, you know, John and I, like, you got me already. But if yeah. anything sense with John, John and I always said, whatever we have a chance to say, give peace a chance. We, you know, that's what we should do. So maybe the three of us are in bed and we just say, give peace a chance. And we go, okay, <laughs> yes, please. And so we do this, uh, we do this little tag. The credits are rolling. We're in bed. Yoke was in between Helen and I. We're just sitting up reading the New York Times and the theme song is playing. We're just reading the paper like, like, well, why wouldn't there be a woman in between us <laughs> dressed? And then right at the end, Yoko says to the camera, give peace a chance. And I think a Helen or I go, this is all we are saying. I went, well, it was the perfect meld of everything that John and Yoko are about with man about you. It's like, this is all we're saying. But there is a moment, I think it's on camera, where Helen and I look at each other after that and go, this is real. We're in a bed in, in a fake bed, in a fake reality, but with real Yoko. That is the definition of surreal. That is surreal. Uh, I want to ask Beverly Hills Cop with some guy named Eddie Murphy. Now, I don't know he, he played the cop, the DHS. Yes, <laughs> You remember him back, yes. I don't know if this is urban myth, Paul. Apparently, Beverly Hills Cop was actually written as a vehicle for Sylvester Stallone, and uh-huh. and you, Paul Reiser, were actually cast in the movie before Eddie Murphy. Can you? Yeah, yeah. I'm so tired of Eddie Murphy riding my coattails. <laughs> you know, his timing flies on. His you know, unless I'm absolutely hallucinating, I do remember. I don't know that it was actually developed for Stallone, but I know he was attached. He was doing it, and I got the script, and it was. I think the director, Martin Brest, had seen Diner. That was the only thing I had done. And just had this thought of, well, this kid's funny and he should be something. Maybe he could be this cop, Jeffrey Friedman. So I was in it and I was thinking, well, I get to meet Sylvester Stallone. This... <laughs> and then for whatever reason, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but Stallone, whatever, stepped away. And it became Eddie's vehicle. And I knew Eddie already from the comedy club. So I thought, well, that's great. Now I'm getting to play with, I don't get to meet Stallone. That's a drag, but, but I'll get to play with Eddie. And, uh, you know, piece of advice, yeah. I would tell anybody, if you want to look good on film, stand next to Eddie Murphy and then just shut up. Just stand still and let Eddie do his thing because there is nobody funnier or powerful, more powerful on film. And uh, But it was great because we got to play and that, that you know, that this is not my locker line, was improvised because I, they didn't, they gave me no exit line. I said, I'm talking to Eddie and then the, the boss comes in and he's chewing out Eddie, but I'm standing there. I go, I, I shouldn't be standing here. I got to get out of here. And I just made up that line, barely even on camera. And still, it's like the only thing people ever remember. Well, that, that franchise is still going. I understand that you have completed filming your scenes for Beverly Hills Cop 4, and it would be this yeah, summer. I don't know. I, I think it's coming out this summer. I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I did a couple of days on that, you know, and I was Eddie and I looking at each other going, it's 40 years later. Oh, my God. Uh, he looks the same. No, no, look exactly the same. He looked, but he's. I, and I told him, I, you know, seeing him on SNL when he, uh, two or three years ago, was such a joy. He was just like seeing him, you know. I said, and we were talking about stand up, and I told him I was out doing. He goes, Yeah, I want to do it, but I don't know. You know, I don't want people recording it. I said, Well, you can fix that. People collect their phones, and you know, make it have somebody monitor the audience. There's nobody. And we all would like to see more of them, Eddie. I mean, like, yeah, I and, and I'd be so curious because I was recently watched one of his old specials and he was ridiculously talented, powerful. I and mean, he was 22, 23. And part of his young, energy, cocky thing was 
just sort of telling the world how great he is. But we know that now. Yeah. I'm really curious. I'd mean, love to see what is 63-year-old Eddie, who's a father of many and grandfather, I think, of some. Like, what do you, you know, it's, it can't be the same. You're not going to no. talk about the same stuff you did. But man, is are his chops uh, other level brilliant? You hosted Saturday Night Live with Annie Lennox as the musical guest. What 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 do you think of sketch comedy? And what was what do you remember about that whole kind of cycle, that one week cycle where you host? Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't my favorite week. I you know it, it was such a cool thrill to be on SNL, and I heard and every so many of my friends had done it, and they said, "Oh, you love it, it's live." And I said, "Well, I do live all the time. Stand up is live." And I've done theater, so I, I mean, I don't want to sound like an ingrate. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I, I also don't think that's my strong suit. I don't know that I'm great in sketch comedy. It's not my, there are guys who do it great. It's not really my thing. And I also remember it just moving so fast that the, I it, I would have loved to take some more time. And like, yeah, there is time. There's like seven days, but you really only use three. <laughs> like, can we write this work? Yeah. Finally, can we practice, rehearse this? I mean, it's great. And, you know, you got a marvel of guys who just, who, you know, who are on it all these years and are great every week, every time. You know, what's it, 45, seven years or something? It's amazing. It's so, yeah, you know, I, I was glad I did. It was fun. I don't think it was my shining moment. Well, you did get to deliver a shining moment on Curb Your Enthusiasm. You played yourself, but with an actress who was not your wife playing your wife. Did the general public get confused? They keep asking you yes. why you're. Well, like, why? Why did they say your wife's Mindy? You know, your wife's not Mindy. Yeah, Working with Larry David. What was the process yeah. like? Well, you know, I know Larry, and and you know, we all. He was also there in the beginning of the comedy club years, and of course, when he was doing Seinfeld, we were doing Mad About You. So, uh, I remember he called when they did a joke, uh, and he called to clear it with me. There was a famous joke where George get Costanza is getting engaged and he's just fighting and kicking and and his girlfriend and i think this was under their credits and their tags george it's on and he comes in and she makes him watch mad about you and you just hear the theme song and he goes are you okay with that i said that's really funny i said yes please but i don't know, i remember like you know that week getting a call can you come down and play with larry in this scene and i said yeah and 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 you don't get a script larry just comes over and he goes all right we're uh you're at the table, and the joke is, and I say hello to you, but I don't say hello to your wife, and just ad lit. It's like, all right. And then he said, then we do another take. He said, uh, another storyline we may or may not use is I'm opening a restaurant, so ask me about my restaurant. Okay. And then we do another scene. He goes, and there's another storyline. I ask, wow, how do you hold all this in your head? Because he has to then decide which threads to pull and put together. So I remember his his direction as it was, was you know, basically hitting three different story points and he'll decide later which to use. And then the, I did a short-lived show that didn't, <laughs> that was short-lived. And uh, he was nice enough to come on. And we had a really, I want, it was a really funny episode. It was, I think it was, the, they only aired two. And I think this was the first one they aired, which was a mistake, frankly, but it's unavailable, sadly. You can't even find this. But the, I played me and he played him. And the joke was, I had offered, I had been offered to, host a game show or like I thought that was beneath me but then I heard Larry was offered and I thought well it's beneath him too and then we're getting competitive it's like well if you're gonna do it so we had the scene at a restaurant and we just ad-libbed for like an hour and a half and he was that was his only condition he goes I'll do the show but no script I went done whatever you say and it was great fun to play you know it's like you know playing tennis with somebody better than you 
<laughs> Which is always say, you know, they always say you want to get good, play with somebody better than you. But that doesn't work for one of the two people. Somebody's getting screwed. <laughs> That's right. It's it's not the best relationship. Someone's going to benefit. Somebody will benefit. Now, on that note, when you talk about Larry David, you got to talk about Jerry Seinfeld. Would you have come up in the stand-up world at the same time as him? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, he was like a year ahead of us, ahead of me. Um, but in the earlier days, the, on audition night at that particular club at the scholarship, it was the MCs that would get to pick the ones who you know tap them on the shoulder for greatness and say, "You're accepted. You can now join join the roster." And Jerry was was there a year, so he was the top comic at the club, and he passed. And one night, uh, the three of we always <laughs> it was the trilogies. Carol Liefer, who ended up who's an old friend and wrote for Seinfeld, and Rich Hall, who went on to great things, and myself were the three auditioners that passed on the same night in seventy eight, I guess nineteen seventy eight. You know, and Jerry was always you know clearly great and and disciplined, and always would go up with his little piece of paper he would take out with three very neatly written bullet points, jokes that he wrote that day, and they'd all be. If not great, clearly going to be something. You know, he was so it was all there from the beginning. You know, this guy is just really good and efficient and meticulous. Paul, when you return to the stage yourself as a stand-up on your tour, March eighteenth, the Rose Brampton tickets available now at therosebrampton.ca. How different is your material? I mean, I don't think you ever did political. I still talk about being in college. Is that Paul? <laughs> you got to. <laughs> but even today, you didn't do political humor before, but I can imagine today it's even better oh. to stay away from that. Oh, I stay away from it. You know, but not. it's not a great decision for me to do. I mean, it's not a particularly tough decision. I've never done political humor. And now it's a pretty high stakes game. So unless you're going to do it really well and you have really something innovative or insightful to contribute, it's better to shut up. But I also know, so not only, so I've never done that. And I, you know, my thing is I tell people I, I don't even make up jokes. I'm just telling you what happened to my house. But it was funny to me. Hopefully it's funny to you. And it is funny to them because they're going, oh, that's my house too, buddy. That's, yeah. that's my wife. That's my kid. That's the same fight I just had with my, you know, trying to upload an app, an app on, or download an app on my phone. Yeah. Um, but what I've also noticed is that when you tell people up front that you're not going to talk about politics, they're so happy. They're like, just like, yeah, we just, we, there's so much news and there's such overload that when you tell them, we're just going to have fun, they go, oh, thank you. It's like, that's that's a sort of a, an extra bonus that wasn't there years ago. People were walking around so tense. Yeah. The idea of not discussing the news would be a great relief, but that's where we're at. Yeah, that is where we're at. So I tell that people they can come and relax, they can leave the news at the door, and there will be nothing of any consequence discussed in my show. <laughs> Except at the end, Paul, I believe you do a Q&A, which I think you enjoy, but do you enjoy that uncertainty? I think not, they, the audience hates it. But do you enjoy the fact, the uncertainty of not knowing what they're going to ask, or you kind of, you enjoy that? Yeah. Well, I, what I do is I, I, they write out cards on the way in and okay. I take them and I, you know, I'll read them. So if something is truly offensive, I don't, but I find that people will, You'll get a better quality question if they're writing it down, is because people don't like not want to stand up and be, you know, called on, or 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 you might get somebody who's too eager to stand up and bring the house down with his cleverness. So I I read the questions, and if it's stupid uh, or offensive, I just don't read it. But yeah, they're often they're they're very surprising, 
but you also get a sense of who people are. And like, so it's not even, it's not even just the question. Sometimes it's just the handwriting or the, the, the politeness of the question, which is the fun of the, uh, it. Like, and all, you know, and I always go, well, who wrote? Sometimes the names are on this. I go, all right, who's Cheryl B? And then, <laughs> and then that's, yeah. And then, and the audience has a great time because they obviously I didn't write this stuff. You know, you guys did. And I always preface it with, you wrote the question. So if this turns out to be not funny, that's on you. That is on you. Now, in addition to your stand-up, Paul, I understand you've also recently completed filming in Ireland for your own original comedy feature film called The Problem with People. What is this project about, and why did you base it in Ireland? I based it in Ireland because I wanted to go to Ireland. That's why I wrote the movie. <laughs> Good reason. I went to Ireland years ago, and I just loved it. And the, the inspiration was a movie in the 80s called Local Hero, which was Burke Lancaster and Peter Rieger. Uh, Peter Rieger plays a young business guy who works for an oil company. He goes to Scotland, not Ireland, but to buy up the oil rights and blah, 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 and, and ends up falling in love with this quaint little town, and, and it sort of seduces him. And I just said, oh, that's exactly the kind of movie I want to make. And so in all the years I was looking, nobody ever gave me one. So I said, well, I'll just write it. So I wrote this movie. But it, but what I it took a while to come up with the, the premise. The premise was, the reason it's called The Problem with People, it's based on two two characters, two leads. It's myself and Colin Meany, who's a great, great Irish actor. You've seen him in everything. And uh, we play distant cousins who've never met, relatives, third generation, fourth generation apart. And our great-grandfathers had a falling out. Our great-grandfathers were brothers, and they had a falling out over something stupid 100 years ago. And so we've not been allowed to talk, and the American side doesn't talk to the Irish side. And he's decided it's time we should bury the hatchet, and it's silly, and we can't solve the problems of the world, but maybe we can heal our family. And he invites me over. And I go, well, why not? I, yeah, I go to Ireland with the intention of raising a pint and, and and burying the hatchet. And then it goes horribly bad. And we ended up, you know, in as many fights and squabbles as our ancestors. And uh, so it's actually about something kind of meaningful, but it's a really funny comedy. And Jane Levy, who's a wonderful actress, plays my daughter and this is a great Irish cast, and it's beautiful. So we're just finishing the final touches on it, and hopefully be out. Might hopefully even be in the Toronto Film Festival in, in the fall. So oh, excellent. So so yeah, it'll be out later this year. But uh, and I'll come back and talk about it because I'm very proud of it. Well, that would be fantastic. As we close up, I want to thank you for all your time. It's been great meeting you and getting all your stories. What do you want to say to the people of Brampton and Toronto and Canada? ahead of your uh, March 18th show. Well, I, I first of all, I would beseech you to come down. There are four shows. Go to, you can go to my website, paulreiser.com, and pick pick your theater closest to you. Because like Elvis, I don't have a lot of things in common with Elvis, but I like Elvis. I don't go on stage if I see an empty chair. As that's how Elvis, however, he would have guys that if there were unsold seats, they would unscrew the seats. <laughs> so really? They'd throw them out. So like, well, whatever's left, they're filled. I don't have the capability of that. So it's so important that people come and put their asses in the chair. But I will see you there. Absolutely. What did your mother want to say? That's what you got me intrigued. Well, we are going to be there. And now that you've opened the door to this, I just want to warn you, Paul, if you if you appear to her to be even one pound under the weight from your mad about you days, you know you're going to end up being dragged into a dinner to make fatten you back up, so well, let me let me say, uh, being underweight is not an issue. <laughs> okay, uh, has not been an issue since 1972. <laughs> On the other hand, she may look at me and go, "You know what? You're going to come over to my house and you're going to eat kelp." 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it could be. And 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 uh, you'll also appreciate it won't be at our house anymore. It will be at Boca Vista Phase 2. Oh, cool. So it'll... It's Boca Vista, but it's in Toronto? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have an outlet there now. Uh, of course you do. Well, for goodness <laughs> sake, come back with mom and say hello. And we absolutely will. All right. Please, Pleasure everyone. Talking to you. Thank you for your extensive research. <laughs> know more about me than I do, so you can <laughs> I... carry on in my stead. Thank you very much. That's, uh, I greatly appreciate your time. Please, everyone, follow Everything Paul at paulreiser.com. Catch him live on March 18th at the Rose Brampton. Tickets available now at therosebrampton.ca. Thanks, Paul. Have a great time in Brampton and with the rest of your upcoming tour. Thank you, man. Pleasure and talking to you. Nicely done. The pleasure was mine. I do want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Paul Reiser, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.